0: With the fall foliage settling on Washington, the Supreme Court will pick up its November argument session this week. The court will tackle a heavy docket touching on the environment, traffic stops, and pirate chips. Welcome to the Term by Law 360, a podcast to keep you up to speed on the nation's top court and the justices that preside there. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the Supreme Court for Law 360, and with me now in the studio is co-host and Law 360 editor at large Natalie Rodriguez.
1: Hey, Jimmy. It's so good to finally be in the podcast room with you.
0: Absolutely. I took the train up to New York yesterday for the Folio Awards, and uh, yeah, it's really nice to be in the cool state-of-the-art Law 360 studio here in New York. So, yeah, it was a, a nice
1: night. Uh, for for those who don't know, Folio Awards are kind of an industry awards that we were uh, nominated for and got a few wins. Uh, but it was also another big night also because I know uh, a bunch of... Uh, of you went out, uh, later than I stayed out, uh, to, to watch the baseball game. Is
0: that's that right. Yeah, the Nats won the uh, World Series last night. You know, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but whenever the hometown wins, that's always a, a good day. I imagine it's probably a good day for Justice Kavanaugh as well, because, you know, I think the world learned that he was like a huge Nats fanatic during the confirmation proceedings when a lot of people were raising questions about his Nats credit card debt, with him, which I think ran up in the tune of thousands, so... He's probably thinking it. Ah, oh, it was all worth it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Uh, well, hopefully he'll rest up because I know next week is going to be a busy week for the for the court and for the justices. Um, kind of diving right in here, you know, there's going to be three days of oral arguments next week. Um, the court will be hearing six cases total. We're going to talk about two of those cases today that are on our radar. Surprisingly, the one involving the pirate ship and copyright issues, Alan V. Cooper, did not make our final cut.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a complicated case. It's a photographer suing North Carolina, and for using his video footage of... The Queen Anne's Revenge, which was, uh, you know, Blackbeard. I guess if you saw Pirates of the Caribbean, he was an actual... Pirate that existed, and I guess he was using some footage or something like that. Anyway, it gets pretty complicated. We'll touch on the case later in the term, but for now, we're going to stick to two other ones that I think are pretty interesting.
1: Yes, what we will be talking about um, is a car stop case that raises some key Fourth Amendment and privacy questions, as well as an environmental case that could essentially give companies a way to escape punishment for polluting groundwater, which doesn't frankly sound very good. <laughs> um, but first, Jimmy, I know Friday is another conference day for the court. What should we expect or be looking at? for.
0: That's right. So as always, you know, stay tuned tomorrow afternoon and Monday morning for the court's orders list. So this is where the court, you know, announces the decisions that it takes um, in its conferences on pending cases. Uh, One that I've been kind of keeping my eye on, which has been interesting, is one called Gundy versus United States. This isn't actually a petition. It's a it's not a petition for cert, it's a petition for rehearing. So this case was actually decided last term by an eight-member court because uh, Justice Kavanaugh wasn't on the bench at that time. Um, but it's, it's kind of complicated, but it, it, it involves a sex offender law but it's really about the separation of powers. Uh, the petitioner in this case, Herman Gundy, he really wants to rein in kind of the power of the executive branch, um, you know, to, to to have this widespread legislative authority. So so he's asking the court to revive kind of an obscure doctrine from the 1930s that prevents Congress from giving too much of its legislative powers away to the executive branch. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that he lost his case last term, um, but that was before an eight-member court and kind of crucially here, Justice Alito said, you know, I'd be willing to take a look at this in another future case and maybe one where, you know, like it's a full bench essentially is kind of the implication there. And so sure enough, Gundy went back and petitioned for rehearing. And that petition has been kind of sitting on the court's docket for you know several weeks now so it kind of begs the question of what they're what's whole what's holding them up could they possibly set this for reargument um this term or next and uh, you know go through all the merits and w- with a full bench potentially the outcome could be different this time
1: yeah that was one of those cases where there were like lots of separate opinions right and I think, I think we talked about this briefly when, when Amber was on, on the podcast uh, last week how it can be troublesome for uh, lower courts uh, yes. when there's like not that clear rule. So I could see why they're, petitioning for the rehearing but it'll be interesting to see if they end up taking it up
0: yeah in this case there wasn't like a clear majority opinion um because there was only four justices that signed it signed justice kagan's opinion alito wrote separately he didn't join kagan's opinion so yeah it doesn't have the same weight and force that like a you know a seven to two would have otherwise had but uh yeah so keep uh, stay tuned for that one for sure
1: uh so jumping into next week's oral arguments um One of the cases we're looking at is Kansas v. Glover. So for a little background, uh, Charles Glover was pulled over in Kansas because when he passed a police officer, uh, the police officer ran a registration check and saw that the registration owner's license had been suspended. So the officer thought the registration owner was likely the person driving and pulled him over to give him a ticket. Right? Okay. So now the cop was right; <laughs> it was Glover, and he was breaking the law. But Glover and his legal team are arguing that the officer was wrong to make the assumption um, without any evidence that he was the one driving. And, and so that this case really kind of boils down to you know whether there is an assumption that the registration owner is the driver or an inference, like whether mm. you know. It's an educated guess, basically.
0: And it sounds really kind of nerdy and in the weeds, but I imagine it makes a whole lot of difference when you're actually talking about whether the person gets pulled over in the end, right?
1: Exactly. And there is, um, you know, so, so, so the question at hand is whether it was reasonable for an officer conducting the investigative stop to assume that the driver was the registered owner. Um, and, and reasonable as in, like, was there reasonable suspicion, which is that benchmark created by the high Court's uh, 1968 Terry v. Ohio decision. And the Kansas Supreme Court, from which this case is coming up out of, uh, said it's not reasonable that the cop pulled him over, assuming that he was the driver.
0: Right. And that decision doesn't, I mean, that kind of flies in the face of like 12 other state supreme courts and and I think four federal circuits I mean it's a pretty entrenched circuit split so it sounds like the supreme court didn't really have much of a choice but to to clear this up
1: yeah I mean it was interesting that the that the Kansas court decided to go the way it went as you mentioned there's so many other courts who've ruled the opposite way and only like three as of like April when the case was taken up only three intermediate state courts had similar rulings to Kansas um, according to senior reporter Stuart Bishop
0: Right, and it's it's interesting too because it's just the latest in a string of Fourth Amendment cases that the court has been taking up. I'm kind of reminded of the 2018 decision in Collins versus Virginia. This was in another, you know, automobile search. Um, in this case, it was whether the police needed a warrant to walk onto, you know, a private driveway and inspect a motorcycle that was like under a tarp and it was suspected of being used in a crime. But that's where I first learned the word curtilage, <laughs> which is the area kind of immediately surrounding a house. You know, I, I just called it the pathway or whatever.
1: <laughs> I actually did not know that was what it was called.
0: You learn more every day, you know.
1: Um, so, yeah, you're right. You know, the, the court has been tackling a lot of Fourth Amendment issues. Um, you know, I think that's just a sign of the times given that, you know, all the new all the latest digital data in, our, our, in right. our world today is kind of just exploding and causing these issues with, with the Fourth Amendment. You know, they've had, um, as our senior privacy reporter Alison Grande has, has noted, they've granted an, um, privacy protections in a number of cases, although granted like narrow protect, protections mm-hmm. when it comes to like cell phone records and like data stored in cell phones and GPS tracking information.
0: Yeah, and this one is interesting because although it does involve kind of your typical, you know, police pulling over a car, there are kind of broader Fourth Amendment implications for it. And I think, like, a number of groups that maybe don't care about, you know, uh, traffic stops are kind of chiming in here. Like, for instance, I think the Electronic Privacy Information Center, right? They filed an amicus brief in the case.
1: Yeah, they did. Um, and, and, you know, I thought it was interesting how, like, their, their brief talked about how, this will become a bigger issue as court, uh, as states adopt um, these, like, automatic license plate scanners. So, you know, when you're, like, zooming right. down the highway and, like, the, the cop doesn't even have to, like, sure. put in your license plate. It's just going to scan you, basically, and, like, give them information.
0: Yeah. So, so getting back to, like, the, the main point of this case, right? So, the, the cop sees the car and sees that the registered owner of the car um, doesn't have a license and just kind of assumes that the person driving the car is the owner, so that there's you know, there there probably is a crime being committed. I was reading one of the briefs and they made an interesting point that, you know, I I think this, there's a lot of registered car owners out there with, you know, their license having been suspended. And so those people need to get to work somehow through family members, friends, what have you. So the implication is that if the uh, Kansas Supreme Court is overturned and and cops are given kind of carte blanche to pull these uh, drivers over, then, you know, you, you have a ton of people who are suddenly subjected to these police searches by no other reason than the fact that, like, you know, their brother or something like that has their license suspended, which I don't think sits well with them.
1: Exactly, and you know, there is the concern that this is going to target um, specifically disadvantaged communities, where in my in communities of color, where sharing of vehicles among like friends and fa- and family is a more common practice, perhaps. Um, and in this case also, uh, interesting enough, seems to have some white collar implications also uh, because it, 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 it touches on the Fourth Amendment's like ties to like whether a search warrant is valid or whether a wiretap was obtained based on probable cause. So, so white collar attorneys also on the opposite spectrum right. are, are really interested in looking at this case.
0: Yeah, so why don't I turn to the other case that we're going to be talking about today, which is County of Maui, Hawaii versus the Hawaii Wildlife Fund. Um, This case is, you know, it's going to be argued on uh, Wednesday, and it asks pretty much the straightforward question of, uh, does Maui County need a permit for the pollution from its sewage treatment plant under the Clean Water Act? So they have this sewage treatment plant that processes, you know, millions of gallons of sewage every day, and it's essentially um, put into these injection wells, and the pollution from there goes into the groundwater below. So the kind of the interesting quirk in this case is the CWA, the Clean Water Act, it, it requires permits for discharges of pollution into navigable waters from any point source. And so this is kind of an interesting middle ground here because... The question is, what is a point source, right? Um, you know, if it would, it's undisputed that if these injection sewage plants uh, dumped essentially straight into the Pacific Ocean, that they would require a federal permit under environmental law. But because they go into the groundwater, which is, you know, deep beneath the Earth's surface— um, and eventually goes into the Pacific Ocean that begs the question of whether or not they too need the permit. So it's this dispute between, um, you know, this facility uh, in the county of, of, of Maui, Hawaii, and uh, an environmental group that's lodged what's called like a, a Clean Water Act citizen lawsuit. And so they're basically trying to get, um, you know, a permitting process involved in this because I think the plant's been open for decades, and it's only been recently that this issue has come up. Um, an interesting point in this case is that the federal government actually used to take the position of the environmental groups in that, like, you know, if you're if you're essentially t- discharging pollution into groundwater that eventually makes its way into a navigable water source, they have to have a permit. It does seem
1: like an issue of semantics. I mean, because either which way, the water is getting polluted.
0: Right. But, of course, um, it's a question of jurisdiction, right? So um, the... The, res- the the petitioner in the case, the county and the federal government, which has since switched its position under the Trump administration and is now supporting the county's efforts. not surprised. <laughs> no, I don't think Comment it's a it. very surprising <laughs> thing. Yeah, it's happened a number of times this term and probably will continue to happen. Um, their position is that uh, the CWA makes a pretty solid distinction between these surface waters that require um, uh, permits, if you want to pollute into them versus groundwater which may fall under other jurisdictions for instance like state regulation could be something that it it falls into so it's not as if they're you know saying that of course everyone should be able to dump all this stuff into the groundwater beneath our feet that eventually runs into the ocean it's more like the cwa is not the place where the permits are should be required here um of course the environmental groups that are uh, have, have brought this citizen suit, they say, you know, you're creating a massive loophole in this system here. I mean, the whole point of this permitting system was to clean up our waters, our navigable waterways, and it doesn't really make much of a difference if it's, like you said, semantics, it's ending up in the same place. So in effect, you know, if you had like, for instance, um, a pipe that you know, hovers four feet above a navigable water, it's undisputed pretty much that that would still require a permit even though the the, the pollution kind of drops like four feet and into the, wa- the waterway. Same, like so too here with the, the groundwater system where it goes under and eventually ends up in the same place. Um, and so they're saying... You know, we're already seeing the massive implications of this. They say that, you know, a, a coral reef um, nearby the Lahaina facility, which is what it's called, there's been a lot of, um, you know, pollutants injected from the sewage, and and nutrients are, you know, stimulating algal growth that are smothering the, the native, um, you know, aquatic life there. So um, environmental groups have chimed in as well and say the implications of this are pretty big. So I think it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Um, it is going to pit... Uh, the Trump administration against kind of environmental groups in a way that I don't think we've seen um, this term. There was an interesting uh, environmental case last year with the dusky gopher frog <laughs> <laughs> that we had talked oh, about yeah, before. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, um, but this will be probably the biggest one um, so far. So.
1: Speaking of big cases, uh, for those of you listening uh, who have been following the Supreme Court calendar, you might be wondering why we haven't talked about DACA, the, that trio of consolidated cases on deferred action for childhood arrivals program. Uh, those are scheduled for the second week in November. So don't worry. We'll be pr- breaking down those cases further in our next episode. So please stay tuned.
0: Absolutely. I'll be in the courtroom that day and I'll try and uh, you know, capture as much that goes on in oral arguments as possible. We'll have a lot to talk about.
1: Looking forward to it. Jimmy, it's been so good to have you in the podcast room today.
0: Absolutely. It's always a pleasure coming up here, and uh, hopefully I'll be back soon.
1: So that's a wrap for us this week. Thanks so much, Jimmy, and thanks to all our listeners. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Allison Grandy, Stuart Bishop, and Juan Carlos Rodriguez. Music for the show comes from Topher Moore and Alex Alana. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.